You have put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise. A sound that resonates that all of heaven and earth may worship you. We tread the hills to meet with you, to see your majesty in all that surrounds us. For it speaks and displays the eternal God of ages, creator, author, victor. In love, you established an everlasting covenant with your people, and it's your love that captivates us. As children of the King, we rush in as waves unrestrained, overcome, overwhelmed, that the King crowned in glory and splendor would reach down to place a crown upon our heads. So we raise our banner, the banner we boldly stand under, the banner of Jesus Christ. From dusk to dawn, from age to age, your praise resounds in all the earth. Deliverer, Redeemer, ruler of an everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken. We trust in the name of Christ Jesus, the only King forever. Thank you for listening. This is the... Zion's Redemption Radio Network podcast, Fundamentally Mormon, brought to you by the Church of the Living Messiah. We are going to be reading Chapter 11 of United Order, pages 158 through 169, Building a Zion. And we'll just start here. I also beheld the redemption of Zion, and many things which the tongue of man cannot describe in full. My scribe also saw in vision the armies of heaven protecting the saints of, of, in their return to Zion and many things which I saw. Joseph Smith, Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 2, page 381. Zion and Babylon have always been competing with each other. They are as opposite in principle as good and evil. But they, can, but they can exist only in proportion to the will and works of people. Good people cannot participate or assist in building up Babylon, nor will the wicked people seek to build up Zion. They cannot long exist together. Babylon is just as pure in its way as Zion is. It is pure evil. For even good, when it becomes contaminated and perverted, becomes an evil. The main thing is that Babylon and Zion cannot mix in any degree. The Zion that, w- that makes concessions is no longer Zion. And quote, what is Zion? By Hugh Nibley, pages 3 and 4. The Lord uses the word Zion more frequently in, uh, in any other word in the Doctrine and Covenants, yet most of the Latter-day Saints scarcely know what, what its meaning is. The importance of Zion cannot be overestimated. The prophet Joseph Smith said, Without a Zion and a place of deliverance, we must fall. Teaching the prophet Joseph Smith, page 71. Joseph Smith also said, For if Zion will not purify herself so as to be approved of in all things, he will seek another people. For his work will go on until Israel is gathered, and they who will not hear his voice must expect to feel his wrath. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, 
page 18. The prophet implies that if this people do not establish a Zion, then God will find someone else who will. The work of gathering Israel must continue in spite of the efforts of those who try to keep them scattered around the world or mixed with those who are not Israel. Furthermore, those who reject these commandments must suffer the wrath of God. Perhaps no injunction upon the Latter-day Saints and its Zion is as forceful as imperative and is imperative as this. The grand purpose for establishing of Zion is explained by the Lord. Quote, And ye are called to bring to pass the gathering of mine elect. For mine elect hear my voice and harden not their hearts. Wherefore the decree hath, decree hath gone forth from the Father that they shall be gathered in unto one place upon the face of this earth, to prepare their hearts and be prepared in all things against the day when tribulation and desolation are sent forth upon the wicked. Doctrine and Covenants, section 29, verses 7 and 8. Speaking of this Zion, the Lord also said that there is none other place appointed. For the work of gathering my saints and that they should gather together and stand in holy places until the Savior comes to establish the millennium. D&C 101, verses 20 and 22. But to establish Zion, it is first necessary to define what it is. The clear definition was perhaps written in the book of Moses, quote, The Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart, one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them. Moses chapter 7 verse 18. To attain a clearer picture of this description, let us place the scripture into a spectrum, just as light passes through a prism. And the Lord called his people Zion because, number one, they were of one heart. Number two, and they were of one mind. Number three, they dwelt in righteousness. Number four, there was no poor among them. Conversely, Babylon may also be described by the same measure or analysis, but by using the opposite principles. Number one, they have contentious hearts. Number two, they are disunited in their beliefs. Number three, they dwell in wickedness. Number four, they are, there are many poor among them. It doesn't require much education to understand which kind of society we are living in today. We may have answered what Zion is, but now the question arises as to where it is and how to establish it. According to the scriptures, it begins with the individual and grows until it covers the whole continent. For instance, quote, a Lord, I'm sorry, a person will say, the Lord has said, this is Zion, the pure in heart, DNC 97, verse 21. A community will say, and it is written, 
that according to the law, every man that cometh up to Zion must lay all things before the bishop in Zion. Doctrine and Covenants 72.15 Which the law of United... Which is the law of the United Order? So you have to have a United Order in order for Zion to be redeemed or established. Brigham Young added that the Latter-day Saints will never accomplish their mission until this inequality shall cease on earth. Journal of Discourses, Volume 19, page 47. And further, what this is, that this is the way that I, the Lord, have decree, decreed to provide for my saints that the poor shall be exalted in that the rich are made low. BNC 104, verse 16. A society. They must be obeying the highest forms of the law, for the, for the Lord said, quote, Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. Otherwise, I cannot receive her and myself. DNC 105, verse 5. The center stake. The Lord has declared it to be his will that his people enter into a covenant, even as Enoch and his people did, which of necessity must be before we shall have the privilege of building up the center stake of Zion. For the power and glory of God will be there, and none but the pure in heart will be able to live and enjoy it. Brigham Young, Journal of Discourses, Volume 18, page 263. The Land of Zion. Quote, You know there has been, much, there has been great discussion in relation to Zion, where it is, and where the gathering of the dispensation is, which I am now going to tell you. The prophets have spoken and written upon it, but I will make a proclamation that will cover the broader ground. The whole of America is Zion itself, from north to south, and is described by the prophets who declare that it is the Zion where the mountain of the Lord should be, and that it should be in the center of the land. When elders shall take up and examine the old prophecies in the Bible, they will see it. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 362. Zion represents heaven on earth. Its people are the pure in heart, and where they dwell is the land of God. God gave a commandment for such a place to be built when he said, quote, and it shall be called the New Jerusalem, a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the Most High God. And the glory of the Lord shall be there. That's the Shekinah glory of God. That's the same kind of glory that came upon Moses when he spoke with the, with the Father. Um, and he had to veil his face with the veil because he had the glory of God or the Shekinah glory of God. That also happened in the tabernacle in the wilderness, and it also ha happened in our modern dispensation at the Kirtland Temple, but not at the Nauvoo Temple. Anyway, continuing with the quote, And the terror of the Lord also shall be there. 
insomuch that the wicked will not come unto it, and it shall be called Zion. DNC section 45, verses 66 and 67. Orson Pratt also gives the conditions for building a Zion when he said, quote, Talk about sanctification. We do not believe in the kind of sanctification taught by the sectarian religion, that they were sanctified at such a minute and such an hour, and that such a place will they, while they were praying in secret. We believe in the sanctification that comes by continued obedience to the law of heaven. I do not know of any other sanctification that the scriptures tell about, of other sanctification that is worth the consideration of rational beings. If we would be sanctified, then we must begin today, and whenever the Lord points out to obey his laws just as far as we possibly can. And by obedience to these laws, we continually gain more and more favor from heaven, more and more of the Spirit of God, and thus will be fulfilled our, yeah, will be fulfilled the revelation given in 1834, which says that before Zion is redeemed, let the armies of Israel become very great. Let them become sanctified before me that they may be fair as the sun, clear as the moon, and that their banners may be terrible unto all the nations of the earth. Journal of Discourses, volume 17, page 112. The purchasing of land to make this Zion must be according to the laws of heaven. Quote, For it is my will that these lands should be purchased, and after they are purchased, that my saints should possess them according to the laws of consecration which I have given. Doctrine and Covenants, section 105, verse 29. Brigham Young also stated, The elements are here to produce as good a Zion as was ever made in all the eternities of the gods, or the Elohim. It is for us, as children of our Heavenly Father, to arise and assume the right law of the Holy Priesthood given to us and organize the elements for a Zion and bring it forth, no matter where we are. I would not give much for a religion that, that is not thus practical, Journal of Discourses, Volume 9, page 285. It was this type of obedience to law and the resurrecting sanctification that caused Enoch and his city to have such power with God that they could make the earth to quake and the mountains to fall down. It is this same obedience, sanctification, and power of God that will cause a few of this people to go back and redeem Zion. They will be able to fulfill that prophecy only by obedience to the law of heaven called the United Order. When Jesus prayed to the Father, he prayed for his disciples that, quote, they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. 
John 17, verse 21. Only living in the oneness of the united order can that prayer be fulfilled. There are are perhaps four reasons why Zion should be established. Number one, for economic and social strength for for a place of refuge. Doctrine and Covenants, section 115, verse 6, and also 124, verse 36. Number two, for missionary for missionary work to gather the elect saints to one place from out of the world. Doctrine and Covenants, section 133, verses 14 and 29. I'm sorry. DNC, section 133, verse 14, and DNC, section 29, verses 7 and 8. Number three. For establishing the patriarchal domestic relationship in the large family, families. See DNC section 132 verses 28 through 42. Number four, for the establishment of the united order, the Lord has promised that if Zion do these, she shall prosper and spread herself in very glorious and great and very terrible. Doctrine and Covenants section 97 verse 18. It is apparent that even in the days of Brigham, they failed. For he said, quote, looking at matters in a temporal point of view and in the light of my strict economy, I'm sorry, and in the light of strict economy, I am, a, I am ashamed to see the poverty that exists among the Latter-day Saints. They ought to be worth millions and millions and millions and millions on millions where they are not worth one dollar. Journal of Discourses, volume 17, page 44. President John Taylor described in more detail, quote, We as a people have come out from Babylon, but we have brought a great amount of these infernal principles with us. And we have... And we have been grabbing, grasping, pinching, squeezing, hauling, honing, and hooking on every side. And it seems as though every man was for himself and the devil for us all. That is about the the position we are in today. We want to change in these things. Journal of Discourses, Volume 17, page 49. Instead of gathering an elect people to make a Zion, we have scattered the elect and gathered in Babylon and the indulged and indulged in her wicked practices. Rather than laboring for Zion, we are laboring for Gentile money, and we have been warned that the labor of the laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion. For if they labor for money, they shall perish. Second Nephi chapter 26, verse 31. We are now being deluged with success, uh, success books on how to get rich on stocks or in real estate, investments, selling, etc. But none of them tell us how to build up a Zion. The Lord has warned us that we must bring forth fruit, meat for their father's kingdom 
Otherwise, there remaineth a scourge and judgment to be poured out upon the children of Zion. Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, verse 58. And again, quote, And Zion shall escape if, if she observed to do all things whatsoever I have commanded her. But if she observed not to do whatsoever I have commanded her, I will visit her according to her, her works with sore affliction and pestilence, with plague, with sword and vengeance, with, and with devouring fire. DNC section 97, verses 25 through 26. This puts the Latter-day Saints in a very precarious position today. The Lord said in 1834 that the Lord could have been redeemed even then. See DNC 105 verse, uh, verse 5. And 150 years later, it is still unredeemed. In the parable of the vineyard, which depicts the redemption of Zion, Doctrine and Covenants, section 101, 43 through 62, the prophecy says that the servant of the Lord was slothful and hearkened not to this commandment of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord came and chose others to go and redeem and redeemed that goodly land. That prophecy will be and is going to be an event that has been the hope and desire of nearly every prophet of God. The prophet Joseph Smith stated, The building up of Zion is a cause that it has interest, interested the people of God in every age. It is a theme upon which prophets, priests and kings have dwelt with peculiar delight. They have looked forward with joyful anticipation to the day when we live and fought um, and find with heavenly, with heavenly and joyful anticipations they have sung and written and prophesied that this our day, but they died without the sight. We are the favored people that God has made choice choice of to bring about the latter day glory. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page twenty three. But today, nearly all of the saints are laboring for money rather than for Zion. This is a time for every man to ask himself for whom he is laboring. For, for Zion, or our Zion in Utah, has been transfigured into a jung, jungle of money-making schemes, cutthroat com- competition mixed with lawyercraft, priestcraft, and doctor pro- doctorcraft. And as of this mess is ruled by a political paralysis. When God spoke from heaven to Joseph Smith, 
the people bowed down by were bowed down by priestcraft, doctorcraft, kingcraft, lawyercraft, which are the four grand crafts that that uphold the, the devil's kingdom. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page eighty, Desert, uh, Desert News. Volume 13, page 12, 1863. Today's Zion not only appears to be dead, but we can fairly find its skeleton. The following quotation is a vivid and beautiful description of how and why Zion should be built. A quick note. I started asking people if they know what Zion's redemption is. Church members. People who have been members their whole life. And I was so surprised how many people did not know what Zion's redemption was. What that is all about. They know the word because it's in popular culture among Mormons, but they don't know what it is. Because the church does not teach it. Making the waste places blossom as a rose and the earth to yield abundantly of its uh, device for fruit, therefore, was more than an economic necessity it was a form of religious worship as one early leader later wrote the construction of water ditches as was as much a part of the mormon religion as water baptism that's because they misinterpret isaiah when it talks about blossom as a rose it is a gathering of the remnant. The remnant it, uh, comes during the time of tribulation. They gather together and there's Zion in the highways of the top of the mountains and the desert places. It has nothing to do with the Latter-day Saints as they currently stand upon the earth. It's the remnant, the tenth of the tenth, the righteous who are obedient to God's commandments. They gather in the highways of the top of the mountains and in the desert places as Babylon falls. That's what Isaiah is talking about. I think it's Isaiah 35 that talks about There's other places too, but it's all in Isaiah. Anyway, the redemption of man's home, the earth, was considered to be as an impo- as important as the redemption of his soul. The earth as the f- uh, future abiding place of God's people had to be made productive and fruitful and transformed into a virtual garden of Eden. And quote, Religion and Economics in Mormon History by Leonard Arrington, BYU Studies, 1961, Volume 3, pages 15 through 33. Yet the perspective, or, I'm sorry, yet the 
prospects of building Zion a hundred years ago seemed to be an impossibility to Orson Pratt, who said, quote, I do not know, but that it would be an utter impossibility to commence and carry out some principles pertaining, pertaining to Zion right in the midst of this people. And this is prophetic that he says this. They have strayed so far that to get a people who would conform to heavenly laws, it may be needful to lead some from the midst of this people and commence anew somewhere in the region round about these mountains. Journal of Discourses, volume 15, page 361. So he's speaking to the saints in Utah, and he's saying... I don't think that there's going to be uh, a group of... I don't think that this church is going to do the job that 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 God is going to choose another people, which Joseph Smith talked about that and others have, that they would have to commence anew, meaning having an organization... A gathering of like-minded individuals who will listen to what God has commanded, who will do what God has commanded, regardless of whether the church listens to, uh, whether the church does it or not. These people would be the wheat taken out of the barrels of tear seeds that is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Somehow, someday, a few faithful elders will rise up bearing the banners of the Kingdom of God and will rally together to redeem Zion which the church does not teach anymore. To these noble men who will prove their valiancy to the cause of Zion rather than to financial plaudits of the Gentile kingdom will be given the keys and the power to unlock the wealth of the world and the redemption that of that promised Zion. So that's the end of building a Zion. Which is chapter 11 of United Order. And uh, just because of tradition on my radio show, I'm not doing, I'm not doing live shows anymore. Because nobody cares to call in and that's fine, but I'm doing podcasts. I'm not going to waste my time doing something that nobody appreciates. Um, but I have been commanded to teach the people because that's my job. So I'm going to continue doing these podcasts, but uh, we're just—I'm not doing live shows right now. 
So, um, so no, we're, we're not going to have any call-in lines. There will be no chat rooms. I will continue to make the podcasts like I have been doing since 2014. I actually started my first podcast. I, I, I co-hosted before that. Um, on an old radio show called Zion's Redemption Radio, I think. And uh, that guy stopped doing everything. Like, he he did a lot of stuff for a long time, and then he just... I don't even know what he's doing anymore. Anyway, but um, I, I started my own um, podcast uh, in January of 2014, shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon, which I'll tell you something interesting about that. Rabbi... Yitzhak Kadori was this venerated awesome rabbi. He lived nobody knows exactly how long he lived, but he was born in the 1800s and he died in 2006. He was born in Iran, so they don't have his record. He was a Jew born in Iran. And he was this awesome rabbi. And when he died, hundreds of thousands of people mourned his loss. Now, this man told his people that he had met the Messiah. And that he talked about the Messiah... He had met him several times in in person, and he did not want to tell people who the Messiah was because it wasn't time for them to know it. But he wrote down a a note. Now, this guy was a, a high, high rabbi. And he wrote down this note, and he said, do not open this until I have been dead a year. So that was 2006 when he died, and then uh, a year later, 2007, his son, Rabbi Kadori, his son, I don't know what his first name is. Anyway, he opened the letter, and there was like kind of this coded phrase, and I can't remember what it was, or is now, but it, it basically he calls Jesus the Messiah, but he uses the uh, Aramaic word for Jesus, which the Jews know, you don't know it probably. Um, there's a Hebrew word for Jesus, there's an Aramaic word for Jesus. We use the English word for Jesus, which is a transliteration of his actual name, um, well, it, it is kind of, it's kind of weird. So there's this, this whole etymology about how um, we get to the point where we call Jesus Jesus, but his, his Hebrew name was Yeshua. And for those of you who have a problem with that, because, well, I thought his name was Jesus Christ. Actually, I got in an argument, not an argument, but I, I told my bishop one time back in 2000, 
uh, 10, I think, about Yeshua's, you know, Jesus being Yeshua. Yeshua's Jesus. Jesus. He says, that's not what the brethren say. And I said, did you know that James E. Talmadge wrote it on page 35 of his book, Jesus the Christ, that his name when he grew up was Yeshua. And he says, I don't care what he said. The brethren today, and I said, did you know that James E. Talmadge was an apostle who wrote Jesus the Christ in the Salt Lake City Temple? And he was so angry that I would dare call him Yeshua instead of Jesus. Okay, no idea. Great, great amounts of ignorance with this bishop. So I I just shut my mouth. I I did show it to him in the book, Jesus the Christ. And I'm like, this book, they ask missionaries to take up. This is James E. Talmadge, the apostle, uh, one of the great apostles. He wrote a lot of books. I've read Jesus the Christ a bajillion times. Literally, I've read that book probably as many times as I've read the, the scriptures. And I've read the scriptures cover to cover many many, many times. So, anyway, but, um, so that's the Hebrew name, but the Aramaic name of Yeshua is Yehoshua. And that's the, that was the anagram of the, the, how the word was. It turns out that Rabbi Yitzhak Kedori was saying that, that Yeshua Yoshua, uh, which, by the way, when you when you go straight from Aramaic into English, it's Joshua. And in fact, in the Old Testament, the prophet Joshua is Yeshua. I probably stuff that doesn't need, even need to be talked about. But they had a huge problem with that. Well, the Christians found out that Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori knows the name of Jesus and he's the Messiah and they like twist all the stuff up right well yep Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori actually talked about two messiahs because in Jewish literature there is actually two messiahs it's all over the the Tanakh it's all over the Talmud uh, it, it's all over the well it's not all over the place but they talk about Mashiach which, by the way, Messiah is Aramaic for Mashiach, which means anointed, which is Greek for Christ. So they talk about Mashiach ben Yosef, which means Messiah, son of Joseph. And the king Messiah is Mashiach ben Judah, which is Messiah from the tribe of Judah. One is a theological Messiah, and one is a political Messiah. So everybody waited. Or was back in the days of of Christ, they were all looking for this political Messiah, but that's not what they got. They got Yeshua, who is the theological Messiah, who is the King Messiah. But in the Talmud, they talked about this other Messiah, Mashiach ben Yosef that would come forth as a witness. Now, they're both called witnesses. And uh, 
this man would be a general and a political leader who would die, who would be raised in resurrection by the first Mashiach, Mashiach ben Judah, or Judah, which is Jesus Christ, right? But they don't, they don't believe that's Jesus. Anyway, so Christians come in, they freak out, and the, the Jews are all pissed off because how dare my, especially uh, David Kadori was his name now, I remember, now that I remember it. Anyway, but David Kadori gets really angry. They, you know, because dad, Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori, wrote that Jesus is the Messiah. So anyway, um, one of the things that Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori talked about was that uh, in, back in 2004, 2005, 2006, he would talk about how we met the Messiah, and then he would talk about individual characteristics of the Messiah, who is now upon the earth right now, and that he did not know who he was but that he would show up on the scene shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon. So Ariel Sharon was in a coma for many, 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 many years. And so anyway, the Christians find out about Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori and the fact that he knows who Jesus is and that he says... They never mind the fact that there's all of these things that haven't been fulfilled yet. Oh, they want Jesus so bad. They just don't care that there's all of these things that haven't been fulfilled yet, and there's things that have to happen before he returns, according to the scriptures. So they're always like, I got thief in the night, and he's going to come any day now, even though, like, the signs of the times have not been fulfilled as far as all of the things that have to happen for him to him to return so anyway but they don't care so they go crazy and you can get on youtube and type in yitzhak kadori yitzhak kadori and you can find all kinds of interviews with christians and them talking about how wonderful it's going to be as soon as you know yitzhak kadori dies then Yeshua's going to return because that's the only Messiah they know, kind of like the Jews. Like, they, only, they were looking for one Messiah, and then when Jesus came, they're like, you're not the one we're looking for, even though he was the one that was sent. And he is the king Messiah, but they want a political Messiah. They want a general who will fight the battles for them. And all the things that Mashiach ben Joseph, or Yosef, would do, Anyway, so, long story short, um, Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori talked about how this individual um, did not know who he was back in 2006, 2005, whatever, but that, that God would make it known to him and that he would rise up on the world stage shortly after the death of Ariel, Sharon. Well, I didn't know anything about that. But in 2013, um, I was very, very upset 
because I was being unjustly and wrongfully excommunicated without a trial from the LDS Church. My state president asked me about some things, and I was very just honest, and I didn't try to, like, dodge his questions or anything. But I testified to him by witness of the Father and the Son, which is that I have seen them face to face, and I have spoken to them. And um, I go into more detail with you guys. I kept it very basic, but I've had these experiences with God since 2000, no, since 1995, like hardcore manifestations, spiritual experiences, where I have, uh, I was caught up in the spirit in 1995, taken to the LDS temple in Salt Lake City, Utah, where Jesus Christ took me through the temple in the spirit up to the center tower on the eastern side above the the highest room in the temple. It's behind the the word plating the house of the Lord and it's directly under the angel Moroni and if you want to know yeah there is actually a room up there and if you look at pictures of the east tower of the Salt Lake Temple or if you can go down there and just look at it you'll see that there is a circular window on the south side and on the north side of that tower to let light into that room that they don't tell you about. It's not in any of the diagrams. They don't want people to know about it. But it turns out that there are two Holy of Holies in the Salt Lake Temple. Now, the Holy of Holies of the Son, Yeshua, or Jesus Christ, is just to the south of the celestial room. In fact, you have to go through the celestial room there's doors on the south side of the celestial room which you have to move. There's big old heavy vases or vases in the way and then you open it up and then you go into the anti-room and you can actually look. Now, I don't know what it's going to be like now that this this individual who leads the church now has decided to completely destroy the Sully Temple from the inside out. But um, you go in, you used to be able to go into that room that's the anti-room. That's the preparation room. And if you turn to the right out of that room and go to the right, you will go into the Holy of Holies. That is the Holy of Holies for Yeshua or Jesus Christ to come into. But there's another one that they don't want you to know about. That I have been in Jesus took me to it, and when I went into that room, it was like going from cold, the cold world into just the most powerful experience of God's power and love that I cannot even begin to explain to you. I would not convert until 1996. This is in 1995. And God told me as I stood in his presence, not seeing him, but hearing his voice, that I would stand.
stand as the prophet when Jesus returns. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details, but the fact of the matter was, I was anti-Mormon as all get out in 1995. I had tried to have my ne- my records removed from the LDS church uh, in 1994. And I was not I was not able to because the bishop in the ward where I had my records said that I was a minor, and that I had to wait until I was older to do that. Um, but I was a Baptist. Uh, I was taught by these Baptist liars about how how Joseph Smith did have a spiritual experience, but it wasn't what he thought it was. That the angel Moroni that appeared to him was actually Satan in disguise come as an angel of light. And I believed them. And I was a Southern Baptist. And I was very, very, very anti-Mormon in 1995. So when I had this experience... It just boggled my mind. Like, I didn't know what to do with the information that God had given me. I understood how powerful the experience was. But even with how powerful that experience was, I did not convert until 1996 when I met the missionaries at the lowest point in my life, just after the lowest point in my life. I had tried to commit suicide, and I'm not going to go into the details of what I did, but it was bad. It was really bad. So, but anyway, so um, I met these these missionaries after I wrote God a letter, and I told God, if you'll show me the truth and you'll heal me, I will, I will serve you for the rest of my life. Now, it's a longer letter than that. That's the gist of what I was asking for. I talked about how horrible I was as a human being and how I loved God, but like all these things had happened to me and I'd gone so far off the path and I just, I was, I still have the letter. It's hard to read uh, because of a snowstorm that I went through as a result of of converting to the, to Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon because I was living with people who were very anti-Mormon as well. And I ended up being homeless on the streets in the winter month of December 1996 into January of 1997. And one night I couldn't find shelter. There was a rainstorm that came in. I had these Carhartt overalls to keep me warm because I was homeless in the middle of winter, could not find a shelter, and it started raining. So I was walking into the rain, very large drops of rain, and started getting soaked in the front because it's coming down like at 40, a 45-degree angle and big heavy drops too. And then it turned to snow, and continuing to walk, trying to get to the shelter like five miles away, trying to survive. And uh, the snow, is, it got really heavy that night, and I just had to keep walking. And I remember um, walking through like two feet of snow, 
uh, up a, up an incline. Uh, I was walking on a sidewalk, but uh, up an incline, just looking at the snow off in the the yards in this uh, by the sidewalk, and just thinking, I just need to fall down and just go to sleep. From the water and the snow, the front of my car hearts were completely iced all the way through to the skin. I was suffering from hypothermia, and if I would have laid down or fell down, I would not be here right now. Now let me tell you, if you ever got hypothermia and you were uh, frozen, <laughs> that stuff hurts so bad when you get thought out, but but I digress. Um, anyway, so um, so this letter that I had that I wrote um, because of that blizzard, I had that letter in my top pocket. I carried it with me everywhere. Before I met the missionaries, I carried it with me everywhere. And anyway, but it's hard to see because my clothing was soaked all the way to the skin. My, I had an overcoat on, a very thick overcoat. Uh, I had the Carhartt overalls underneath the uh, overcoat. And I think it was suspenders, but I can't remember. Maybe it wasn't, but it doesn't matter. The Carhartt winter edition. And then I had clothing, regular clothing on underneath all of that, and it was soaked. So the letter got soaked. So the ink blurred. And uh, I, when I finally was able to take that stuff off, I pulled the letter out and I put it on the table and I let it dry. So I do have that letter still. But anyway, um, so I guess going back, I, I did convert in 1996. And then, um, and then I went on a mission in 97 for the LDS church because I was already a member and a bunch of other stuff. Anyway, so I completely changed my life around. God showed me the truth. He also healed me of my drug addictions. I was uh, using a lot of drugs back then because uh, I wanted to die, and I was too scared to kill myself, so I just used drugs to alleviate some of the mental trauma that is my past and the neglect and all of that that I suffered at the hands of my mother. And uh, anyway, so um, so I, I, I valued highly my membership in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because I knew that Joseph Smith was a prophet, you know, and I knew that the Book of Mormon was true. So anyway, in... Um, in 2003, that's when I had my experience with being caught up in the flesh and seeing the Father, God our Father, and God our Redeemer, two separate individuals for those Trinitarians out there listening. Um, I, I embraced them, both of them, in the flesh. And God is has called me up upon Mount Vashel or Mount 
Zion to his house, his holy temple, the temple of the Father, many times. And he's given me many dreams and many visions and shown me so many things and given me revelations and all of this. And I knew that in 1995, God told me that I would be the last prophet before the coming of Jesus Christ. So I figured maybe I'll be called into the first, I'll be the first, you know, whatever. And I just try to figure out, speculate and try to figure out like, how is this going to work? Like, well, I know God told me these things. God the Father told me these things, but I don't, I don't understand. Anyway, but I didn't go around telling people any of that. I didn't try to like puff myself up. Um, I am under. I understood that uh, pride cometh before the fall, and I'm not going to be prideful about my knowledge or my experiences or anything else. And the only reason I'm telling you about this is because God told me to be bold, which is different than me bragging about it, which is not what I'm doing. But anyway, so I'm continuing in the church. Um, now, there's so much detail to all of these stories. But in 2012, I met my wife. God commanded me to marry her. I told God, I'm not going to tell her that you told me to marry her. She's got to come to me if she wants to, to, uh, you know, anyway. So, like, the next day or something like that, Kim calls me and she says, God told me to bear you children and ease your burdens. And I'm like, I know, God told me to marry you. And she was a stranger basically um, <laughs> our story is crazy how we got together anyway but but so I got married to this this stranger who I've been married to for nine years now and I love her to death I love her so much but God put us together and we when we first got married we had only met each other and known each other for 20 days in person. In fact, it was less than two months from the time God told us to, commanded us to get married, that we got married, and we only knew each other from a chat room. And... God put us together. God's our matchmaker. Neither one of us were going to get married. We were done with dating, whatever. But anyway, so um, now, so when I got married to this woman who was a complete stranger, her parents kind of freaked out. Her mom and her stepdad kind of freaked out. Like, why is my daughter marrying this complete stranger, you know? So, my mother-in-law was a rabid female dog in heat. And um, she tried to destroy her marriage multiple times. She went to the stake president and um, Kim had told her about 
my experiences and and also the experience where when she's going to marry this strange man that she doesn't even know who he is, you know, that she's only met and whatever. Anyway, so she goes and tells the stake president about me. And after we get married, the stake president calls me in and he wants to know, you know, if these things are true. And I was just, I told him, yeah, I've seen Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ face to face. I wasn't sharing it among the ward members, but because my mother-in-law knew the experiences that I had had because my wife told her, and then I was open about those things as well, my mother-in-law tried to destroy our marriage every chance that she could get. She's kind of like my co-driver. So I have this co-driver who he reminds me of a young child, uh, like the youngest child. Now he's in his 60s now. But he is so nice to your face. And I actually thought things were going really well between us as a, a relationship between, you know, people who share a truck but he, since I started at this company I work at now, he has backstabbed me three or four times where I have no idea and I get side, I don't even know what the word is for it, but, but my mother-in-law is the same, the same way, so nice, goes behind your back and tries to destroy your life, this woman. And she's toxic. She's extremely toxic. Anyway, and I don't care if she hears this, I don't like her. And the only reason I tolerate her is because it's my wife's mother. But anyway, she goes to the state president and says some things, and then they call me in. And I was like, yeah, I have seen the father and the son face to face. I told him about my experience in 1995, and I also told him in 2004, God told me to write a letter to President Hinckley, and I wrote the details of this room that I saw, and I sent it off on a Monday, and on a Thursday, I get a call from my state president who says somebody wants to meet me on Sunday that I needed to be in the sacrament meeting room 30 minutes before the meeting began and that that individual would uh, find me. And it was L. Tom Perry. And L. Tom Perry interviewed me about my experience with, uh, with the father and the son in the Salt Lake Temple that I had in 1995 and uh, he slapped me on the back after everything was done, and he said, well, God's the one that chooses his prophets, because we sure don't. So he knew some things I didn't know back then, but he understood some, th uh, some things about the hierarchy of the church. But anyway, so he slaps me on the back, and he, to he told me when, uh, after he left, after a sacrament meeting, that I needed to go to my stake president's office, and he had something for me. So I did. I was obedient. And I went to the state president's office, and it was like this huge letter that I sent off to President Hinckley with all these diagrams and everything of this this room and these 
the, that experience uh, in particular, and they actually archived it in the church records. And uh, I don't remember what the... There's two different archive numbers on it. Uh, it says uh, there's a stamp on one of the the most important pages. It says Office of the First Presidency, email of the First Presidency. So I don't know they emailed it off to somebody. But anyway, so Al Pompey come and interviewed me about the experience of my experience of the Holy of Holies just under the Angel Moroni, which is the highest room in the temple, which is the Holy of Holies for the Father. So you've got your celestial king, uh, your celestial room, uh, just off to that, off that. That's the that's the holy of holies that they let you know about. But then there's that other one that's actually the holy of holies of the Father, and, and it's in the upper eastern tower on the eastern side. And uh, when I tell people about it, they're, oh, that's interesting. And then they go and they look at pictures on the Internet, and then they're like, oh, there's a room there because you can see these windows up in that tower. Yeah, I know. I've been there. I've been in it. You're not supposed to know about it. I do know about it. So I told that state president, you know, just let El Tom Perry know. Like, I'm not lying to you about my experiences. They know about them. Anyway, and that's why I was so upset when El Tom Perry died because I was like, I don't know what other ones know about, and they all do, because, like I said, I got a call on Thursday, the Thursday after I wrote the letter. That's because they get together Thursday morning. There's a count, the Council of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency meet in the upper rooms of the temple on Thursday morning, and then Thursday afternoon, when they're done with the meeting, they call me because they, they read this letter and they knew about this, they know about the room and they know about whatever and I, I you know I, I knew President Hinckley so he knew who I was um, he knows my um, my grandparents uh, elder and sister Walter, who um, served seven missions for the church and my grandfather was on the missionary correlation committee and different things and they just they know they are friends President Hinckley and my grandfather, uh, Calvin Lichtenwalter, and then Leona Lichtenwalter and Marjorie Hinckley, they're friends, right? So they know who I am. And I'm also dating, um, at the time I was dating um, Rebecca Lindbergh, whose grandmother is Beulah Hinckley, who is the sister of... President Hinckley and we used to go to church in the Joseph Smith Memorial Building which is where President Hinckley's ward was as president of the church so yeah they know who I am so anyway they get this letter from me and they sent El Tom Perry to come interview me about the letter and El Tom Perry slaps me on the back and he said well God's the one that chooses his prophets because we sure don't what you didn't understand at the time like I said but I told the state president this, and like there is an, a record of this this information that the church has. And at the time, El Tom Perry could have told them, "Yeah, I talked to him. His experience is legit." But the state president wasn't having it. Didn't even give me the ability to be at my own trial. Um, wouldn't 
wouldn't postpone it because I wasn't over the truck truck. I couldn't get back. And I told him, look, I, I about four days before, I just said, I, I know I'm not going to be able to get back to to this trial, and I really want to be there. Can you please reschedule it? And he told me, it doesn't matter what you say that you're getting excommunicated, which that's not the way it's supposed to be in the church. I'm supposed to have, uh, there's supposed to be a council of 12 and the first presidency of the state, basically. And they're supposed to be able to hear what I have to say, and they're supposed to have six for me, six against me, um, you know, whatever. And I wasn't even allowed that opportunity. So I was very upset. I was crying because every part of me was so TBM Mormon was so dedicated to the hierarchy and to the structure of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I was very upset, and I was crying and pleading with God, not understanding why this was happening to me for my witness, when he said, kneel down before me and ask me who you are. So I did. And when I did, God caught me up in the spirit and he showed me a vision of the pre-existence. And he showed me exactly who I am. And that I was chosen from among the quorum of mighty and strong ones who are generals in the armies of heaven. There are 12 in front of the throne uh, so the first presidency of this earth is God the Creator, who is the Father, God the Redeemer, who is the Son, and God the Witness, who is the Holy Ghost. And that I was taught in that vision that they are mighty and strong for this earth. And that standing in front of them are twelve who are generals in the armies of heaven who are mighty and strong for this whole earth. And I saw when Lucifer, who was God the witness, rebelled, a war ensued and a third of the host of heaven were cast out, Lucifer was cast out, and half of the quorum of the mighty and strong ones were cast out for rebellion against the Father and the Son. And Lucifer, or Hillel, that's his name in Hebrew. It means light bearer or bringer of light and truth. He had his name and title stripped from him. And he became Hasatan or Satan, the accuser of the brethren. And he became the devil at that point. And I saw that the father and the son went among us who remained, who are mighty and strong. And they chose me to take the place of Lucifer to become the second witness of the Father or Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah ben Joseph, God the testator, the Holy Ghost, if you will, the Ruach HaKodesh. And that that is why I have had my experiences 
where I have seen the Father and the Son face to face in the flesh, and I embraced them in the light of the noonday sun. And the Father did lay his hands upon me and sealed me up unto himself and unto eternal life, and that I am the second witness of the Father. Mashiach ben Yosef. Now Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori, he knew that I was on the earth when he was still alive. He died in 2006, and that at that time I did not know who I was, but that I would show up on the world stage shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon, who, by the way, Yitzhak Kadori in 2006 knew that Ariel Sharon was in a coma. Ariel Sharon was in a coma until January of 2014 when he died. And shortly after, and I did not know any of this stuff until after the fact. Shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon in 2014, I started my first worldwide radio internet radio show and podcast called The Kingdom of God or Nothing. Because God told me to. And I have been doing these radio programs since January of 2014. But I'm I'm not doing the radio shows all the time now. I we're not taking phone calls. We don't. I'm not. I'm just not doing it anymore. Um, so, with all that being said, I will continue to do the podcasts when I have the ability to. So the next chapter that we're going to be listening, uh, you'll listen to me read, uh, will be chapter twelve: the inheritance of the saints. So I'm not going to do the preview because I talk too much anyway. And uh, so uh, when I finish the programs, when everything is done, uh, I will just upload them to iTunes and uh, I'll post them in the regular places that I post them. And uh, I'll do live shows every now and then. So if you want to be uh, on my live show, just let me know. And we'll see what we can work out. Maybe we can do a special program where we do questions and answers. But the way it is now, I, I don't know why I'm wasting my time. Like, during the hours of 8 p.m. to 10 p.m., I'm actually at work. And I don't get to control that. I don't want to work nights. Um, I want to be home with my family, actually. And that's something that I'm getting sick and tired of not being able to be home. Because I work Saturday night through Thursday night I get Friday during the day off where I'm too tired to do anything and I sleep a lot um, I get Friday evening off all the way to Saturday evening and then after sunset I, I observe Shabbat and then I go back to work and it sucks because I work on my day off I'm supposed to have Thursday night off but I work because like why why should I 
stay home when I'm on the schedule, and I'm just going to be home when my family's gone all day, and, you know, so I just go to work. I try to anyway. So, and, like, I wish I had the weekend off, like my family does, so I could observe the proper Shabbat, which is Friday night to Saturday night, sundown sundown to sundown, and then uh, the Lord's Day actually begins at sundown on Saturday and goes till sundown on Sunday, which is, you know, when we have our church meetings and stuff as Christians. And I would love to be able to keep the Shabbat and the Lord's Day, but I can't because I have to work one of the weekend days, so I work Saturday night, and I work Sunday night, and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, all the way to Friday morning. So... You know, during the hours that I'm working, I try to do the radio show, and my wife helps, but I'm just, she's got to do other things. Uh, she's got, we've got five kids and a farm to take care of, and uh, I'm just, I'm done with the radio shows right now anyway. So, uh so I'll upload this as soon as it is done, and I'll put the the um, the text and everything the way I usually do at Zion's Redemption Bookstore and Zion's Redemption Radio Network, which are pages on Facebook. Uh, Church of the Living Messiah. There's two pages on Facebook. They're both mine. One of them Facebook auto-generated because uh, because it's a thing. And uh, the other one I created on my own, but then the other one got auto-generated. So now i got two pages that are the Church of the Living Messiah. They're both, I, well, I read them both. And uh, my group's LDS Last Days Prophecy and Gospel Discussions, LDS Gospel Mysteries, and then there's a bunch of other groups that I post to. So anyway, uh, the text and everything will be at that place. And also, by the way, um, I did buy a laptop computer because I'm trying to build a website, and uh, I'm going to put all of my revelations and all of my experiences, and I'm going to work on cataloging my uh, my programs, my podcasts, internet radio shows with all the text and put everything there. And uh, when I get that up and running, I've already paid for the domain name. Uh, but they said that I had to have a uh, lap or a, a computer to actually build the website, and I couldn't use my iPad and my iPhone, which is what I use for everything. So I went out and I had to buy myself a $200 cheap basic computer laptop so I can build this website. So that's what I'm doing now. And, uh, you know, thank you, everyone, for listening. And I'm sorry that I'm not going to be on live from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. anymore but uh i've just decided i've had enough and i'm i'm i help people call in i help people uh enter a discussion of dialogue you know if i'm wrong tell me i'm wrong and then we'll talk about it if i'm right tell me i'm right and then we'll talk about it you know that i that's that's what i wanted for the radio show but I'm sorry to say it, but he whose deeds are evil cometh not unto the light. And with my proclamation about who I am and the experiences that I've had, I'm either 
a complete lunatic, which is kind of weird because I've been a truck driver for 25 years and I've, I have a, a family with seven people in it and a farm and I am very stable and have a very, very strong work ethic. All of these things that crazy people can't do. You know, and then my wife, like, can testify to my character. Or I am deluded, I guess. Or or I am actually who I proclaim to be. But regardless of all of that, you can learn from these radio shows. Hearing the quotes of the scriptures and the prophets can edify you, even if I'm not who I say I am. So, I am very grateful to people, for the people who do listen. Like I said, in Isaiah chapter 28, it talks about the one mighty and strong who would come among the drunkards of Ephraim who would teach they who had been weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast and what that is is the milk of the gospel people who are ready for more and I'm teaching it and I'm doing exactly what God showed Isaiah that I would do and this is all part of the setting in order which is talked about in Doctrine and Covenants, section 85, where Jesus says that he would send one mighty and strong to set the house of God in order, which implies that it would get out of order, which it did. And I am that one mighty and strong who was sent to do this work as an Elias to prepare the way for the building up of the redemption of Zion and for the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach, or Jesus the Christ, and for Zion's redemption and Adam and on and the Church of the Firstborn, this is all laying the work. Because there has to be a people who will be obedient to what God has commanded according to Genesis chapter 9 of the Inspired Translation. And that when a people build Zion below, they shall look up and Zion will come down out of heaven with the church of the firstborn, which is has to happen before Adam and Anayaman. So anyway, thank you for listening to the program. Take care, everyone. God bless and goodbye. Thank you.